Hey everyone, you're listening to Pod Academy. My name's Craig Barfoot. Today we're looking at a book called US Foreign Policy and Perspective, Clients, Enemies and Empire. This book analyzes the last 100 years of US foreign policy and it argues that the US has maintained a client state empire during this time. Now, to find out what that actually means, I'm talking to the author David Sylvan. He is the Professor of International Relations and the Head of Political Science at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. David Sylvan, thank you very much for talking to me. My pleasure. Amongst uh, the academic world, is there much of a debate as to whether or not the US actually has a client state empire or are most academics in agreement to this? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, when when uh, my co-author and I first started presenting this work, we got two kinds of responses. The the res- first response from from academics was from people who were, let's say, from Latin America uh, or from smaller countries. Well, of course, the U.S. has client states. Everybody knows this. It was the Europeans, um, or in some cases, some Americans who said, well, I don't know, client sounds really kind of nasty and it sounds imperial and everyone knows the United States is in favor of freedom and so forth. So there was some disagreement about that, although when it came time to talking about actual cases, there was very little disagreement. On the other hand, people from the U.S. State Department, or better yet, from the U.S. CIA, would say, well, this is absolutely what we do. Yes, that's exactly how we reason about the world. Do you think this filters down to politicians at the sort of political level? Do you think a, a U.S. politician views the world in these terms? Oh, or? absolutely. Well, do they do they do they do they use the term like client state? No, not necessarily. But they absolutely think of the world as their own responsibility. I mean, take for example what happened just. Uh, the last few weeks, so the, the difficulties that the current government in Iraq is having with regard to the Sunni groups um, in Anbar province and elsewhere in the country. And as you as you may recall, they've run into some difficulty there. There have been uprisings, Al-Qaeda-related groups have taken over, parts of Fallujah and so forth. And the immediate reaction by U.S. politicians was, A, that this is terrible and the U.S. has to try to help them out. And B, of course, if they were Republicans, to try to blame Obama and the Democrats for not helping them out even more or for not maintaining U.S. troops even longer. Um, nobody said, well, listen, it's an independent country. Whatever happens, happens. Um, there was the assumption that, of course, the U.S. basically had to, had to continue being responsible for what was going on there. And it's that same logic that decades and decades ago led the U.S. to have major political convulsions over the question of who lost, quote-unquote, China. I guess maybe as another way to try and um, help get our heads around this idea of a, a client empire, could you maybe contrast this idea with something a bit more familiar, like the older-style European empires? Well, exactly. That's a very good question. I mean, there are both similarities and differences. The, the, the difference, obviously, the, the single biggest difference is that the U.S. does not territorially annex these states. So take the UK, for example, which has been a part of the US, uh, has been a a very important US client state since the end of World War II. The United States obviously has no colonial privileges vis-a-vis the United Kingdom. Uh, The US doesn't have a governor general who who is in charge of the country. Uh, There is no direct control. Uh, The US Congress doesn't actually allocate a budget for Britain and so forth any more than they do for that matter for a country like El Salvador. On the other hand, um, and so that's, that's the clearest single biggest difference. 
Um, on the other hand, there's an awful lot of similarities. For one thing, you have typically in a number of U.S. client states, you have U.S. military forces that that uh, that are stationed in place. There's a huge number of U.S. military bases around the world. There is an incredibly intrusive type of uh, surveillance relationship. Um, typically, the U.S. ambassador is essentially a kind of plenipotentiary who um, when he speaks, sorry, what's a plenipotentiary? Someone who basically is given very significant diplomatic powers. Okay. Um, the U.S. ambassador is the go-to person in a number of countries. Um, these days, obviously, with different forms of communication, it's possible for a U.S. president or a secretary of state to call up a prime minister or a, a president of another country directly. But even so, the local U.S. Um, official, the, the the head of the the head of the embassy and often the CIA station chief are very important uh, persons. On top of that, the method of surveillance in terms of sending back detailed reports about what's going on is something that actually is very similar to what happened in terms of um, Britain and parts of its uh, its African colonies or even in uh, parts of India. Um, of course, those were colonies. But this notion of routine reporting um, is the kind of thing that in some ways was actually invented by the British in the late 19th, early 20th century. And it's really interesting if you look at the reports, because the way we think about this, at least the way it's taught to our students in international relations, is that international relations has to do with how people and how leaders in one country are concerned with what a second country is doing to them or doing to a third country. So the United States might be concerned, for example, with how Brazil is dealing with the United States or how Brazil and Argentina are dealing with each other. But in fact, what we found is that in about 95 percent, maybe 98 percent of all the the um, uh, cable traffic, that is the telegrams and the communications that went back and forth between U.S. embassies in other countries and the headquarters back in Washington, they concerned entirely domestic affairs for these countries, what was going on in those countries, and it had nothing to do with those countries' international relations. That's a hallmark of an imperial state, that it concerns itself massively with what's happening inside other countries. And it's very asymmetrical. I mean, I'm sure that Brazilian politicians have a lot of interest, perhaps to some degree a morbid curiosity about what's going on in Washington. But no Brazilian president in the world would ever imagine starting to lecture the United States for how, for example, the U.S. healthcare system works or more correctly doesn't work. Whereas U.S. officials constantly lecture their counterparts in other countries about domestic spending or about agricultural reform or about a host of other issues. Uh, David, in your book, you claim that the U.S. is overwhelmingly concerned with maintaining the regimes of their client states. Could you explain this a little bit more for me? There is a, there is a real worry in Washington that any change in the status quo is almost by definition threatening. So during the Cold War, for example, a change in status quo was always seen as potentially opening the door for communists to take over. These days in the Middle East, the change in the status quo would be seen as potentially opening the door for Al-Qaeda to take over. Back in the 1920s, um, change in regime in countries in, let's say, uh, Central America would be seen as opening the door for, believe it or not, Mexico to take over. Because in those days, Mexico was was a really a kind of bet noir for the United States. Um, so there's a there's a concern that anything that rocks the boat, 
is is worrisome and threatening. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean it's actually that there is a real chance of any of the kind of scenarios I was sketching out actually taking place. But from the standpoint of Washington, um, that doesn't matter. What matters is that they is that something actually might happen. So they tend to be very, very conservative. Now, that doesn't mean they'll always defend every single person in a regime. So it happens from time to time that certain leaders they decide are simply too unpopular or are too incompetent. And in those cases, they will encourage them to step down. For example, this happened with Ferdinand Marcos or the Shah of Iran. Or in some cases, as in the case of the former president of South Vietnam, Gozin Ziem, they'll actually be amenable to a coup d'etat against them. Um, so you can have changes of personnel, but there's no change in regime if by regime we mean, as we talk about in the book, the configuration of political and economic power in a particular country. Yeah, uh, just to ex could you expand on that a little bit more? Because in the book, uh, well, also in, in reality, uh, the U.S. then supports all kinds of different regimes. Absolutely. So you find, for example, that, and this is this is why years ago when we first started looking at this, we realized that the standard explanation, for example, the thing that's taught in lots of courses, the United States always promotes democracy around the world, is obviously false. It's not that U.S. leaders are against democracy. It's just they're only in favor of democracy in under certain circumstances. So you find, for example, that the United States in Western Europe supports parliamentary democracies. The United States in the Middle East supports, for the most part, patrimonial uh, or dictatorial countries. Uh, in the case of Saudi Arabia, it supports a monarchy. Um, for many, many years, in the case of some countries in East Asia, it supported highly authoritarian regimes. In some cases, it supports strongmen. In some cases, it supports something that's that's uh, more parliamentary. That's not why U.S. leaders do the kind of things they do, because they, they have a kind of ideological sense that, okay, here's what we want ideally, and if you're too far away from that, we won't support you. What they want is, for the most part, the status quo. Okay. If they're uh, constantly then uh, striving for the status quo, what if what if a client state? Okay, you mentioned the UK before. If a if a client state um, with overwhelming support elects to to change its style of government, like say That's, that that becomes problematic. Okay. Um, so in some cases, for example, in the case of Chile, when uh, a socialist uh, Salvador Allende was elected, the US tried to first foment a coup d'état so he wouldn't take power. I think it was Kissinger who said this. He didn't see why a country should, quote, go communist due to the irresponsibility of its electors. And so they eventually were able to, to make sure that, that Allende was overthrown. In other cases, they'll try to fix elections. Um, so that in 1948, for example, in the case of Italy, this was the CIA's first successful operation. What the CIA did was basically to spend large amounts of money passing it around to various opinion leaders, newspaper columnists, editorialists, members of the, of the Catholic hierarchy, including uh, one of the cardinals who later on became the Pope, um, to make sure that uh, people who were electors were warned that it would be a terrible thing if they were to vote for communists. In still other cases, um, leaders who are newly elected have to come to Washington to re reassure Washington that everything is okay. So back in 19, in 1981, when François Mitterrand was elected, and he was the first socialist president of the Fifth Republic in France, uh, immediately after being elected, he sent his top aide to Washington to appear on 
news programs and to talk to members of Congress and to talk to the State Department and the White House behind the scenes and to assure them that even though communists, uh, Communist Party had several ministerial posts in his, in his cabinet, that nonetheless they wouldn't have any power. And the very fact that he felt obliged to do this shows the extent to which there is a clear sense that anything that's a change is automatically threatening to the Americans. Okay, then let's look at Egypt for a moment. Uh, and I was wondering if you could just spend a few moments kind of examining, <laughs> examining, examining the uh, situation in Egypt for me and, and give us a bit of an analysis of what's happened just through the lens of this U.S. client theory. Yes, well, that's a very that's a really interesting case because Egypt, of course, has been a client of the U.S. since the early 1970s, since Anwar Sadat was president, um, and the U.S. has, as I'm sure you know, poured into Egypt billions and billions of dollars worth of military and, to some degree, economic aid over the last few decades. So Egypt is not just any client state; it's actually a very important client state. It's important, obviously, most of all because of its relationship with Israel, but also because of its sheer population political prestige within the Arab world and so forth. Now, um, when Mubarak, who had a very, very cordial relationship with the United States for many years, was um, being criticized a few years ago as a result of the demonstrations in Tahrir Square, the U.S. did the standard thing they do. At first, they defended him. And then when they realized that he was simply too unpopular, they cut him loose. And Obama very famously said, um, it made, 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 made clear signs that he thought Mubarak's time had come and it was time for Mubarak to step down. Eventually, Mubarak did step down. What then happened was there was an, there was an interregnum and eventually, um, uh, uh, Morsi, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, candidate became the president. The U.S. was not terribly excited about this because the U.S. was not very fond of the Muslim Brotherhood, but they decided that they could work with Morsi. They worked with him. And then, really interestingly, when the military coup d'etat took place last summer, at that point, the U.S., in spite of all of the instead of U.S. legislation that said that they would, would, would try to cut off aid uh, to countries that had a military coup, in spite of all the lectures about the importance of democracy and how terrible it was for military governments to power, the U.S. officials were so concerned that they would lose the client if they were to criticize it, that they refrained from criticizing it. And indeed, for a number of weeks, they refused to even use the word coup. I think the State Department had some kind of mealing mouth comment about how, well, coup-like elements have taken place or something along those lines there. So Egypt is a perfect case in point of a U.S. client um, and we see there that the U.S. is very concerned to maintain um, a strong relationship uh, with, with, with Egypt. And that means, of course, in, in this particular case, a strong relationship uh, with the Egyptian military. Since the coup, has the military aid continued? Yes, yes. They had a, a few symbolic cuts whereby there were a few programs that they cut back a little, but the bulk of the aid. Uh, has continued un unchanged. And indeed, they've been at pains to try to head off any attempts in, in Congress to, to, to cut the aid. Shortly after the, after the coup, in fact, um, some of the, um, some members of Congress went to Egypt and actually defended the military against the Muslim Brotherhood and against civilians who were actually calling for the army to go back to the barracks. Um, so over and over and over, you have members of the political elite very closely connected with this. And I might add, by the way, it's interesting because it's not just it's not just in, in one party. This is something in both political parties. 
You've obviously thought about this and analysed it for, for quite a while. And what alternatives do you see the, for the US policy? What do I think is possible or what would I like to happen? Um, let's go with <laughs> what would you like to happen? What I'd like to happen is that the U.S. wouldn't do these kinds of things. Um, as speaking as a U.S. citizen, it's something that pains me considerably. Um, the, the client state empire, on the one hand, compared to what other countries spend is colossal, but compared to the total size of the U.S. economy is not that big. On the other hand, I can imagine this money being used for lots of things that I would greatly prefer. I think it's very unhealthy to deal with, with states in this kind of, of hierarchical fashion. Just the same way that people who are accustomed to giving orders to others, um, it's not a very healthy way of dealing with them. Um, it's something that, as we know, promotes secrecy. It promotes the uh, aggrandizement of executive power. It's, it's, I think, something which is extremely deleterious to U.S. democracy. Um, so I would like to see uh, changes. I, I would like to see significant cutbacks in the budget for for the military, um, for spying agencies and things like this. Do I think that's likely to happen? No. I think it's extremely unlikely to happen um, because right now the range of political political discussion in the United States is relatively limited. It's broader than it used to be, but it's quite limited. And, and um, in order for there to be some real change, you would have to either have a massive economic crisis, much more massive than we've had until now, and that's not likely to happen, or there would have to be some major change in the way that political elites um, actually see the world, and I don't see that as happening anytime soon. Great. David, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, thank you very much for that. Professor David Sylvan is co-author, along with Professor Stephen Majeski, of the book U.S. Foreign Policy in Perspective, Clients, Enemies and Empire. The book is supported by a companion website, which you can visit by clicking on the link on our website, podacademy.org. My name is Craig Barfoot. Thanks for listening.